Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Welcome to Space 3D. Two well-respected aerospace organizations had experience making high-altitude pressure suits, but only a couple of engineers from a relatively unknown company known as ILC Dover had set their sights on developing a true spacesuit with high mobility for the Apollo program. In his book, Lunar Outfitters Making the Apollo Spacesuit, Bill Avery tells the people story of ILC and documents the technical details of the various models of the Apollo suit, including pre-Apollo suits. Bill retired from ILC in May of 2019 after 41 years of service. He was responsible for managing the test laboratories for the company where the spacesuits made for the space shuttle and then the International Space Station were tested prior to delivery. He also represented the company as their historian. Join co-hosts Tom Hill and me, Eleanor Rangers, for part three of our interview with Bill Avery on the history of U.S. spacesuits. In this episode, we'll start out with discussing the curiosity of space shuttle rescue balls and then explore some other interesting anecdotes, including assisting the sound engineer for the movie First Man to record actual sounds of an Apollo spacesuit and his work assisting the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum with preservation efforts for Neil Armstrong's Apollo suit. We'll conclude this episode by turning to Bill's work on spacesuits at the close of his career with ILC Dover, with comments on where the future lies with new spacesuits, and what might be Elon Musk's role in driving innovation in design. I'm a, an aficionado, long time of uh, the shuttle, had some of the old textbooks on it and things like that, and there used to be the idea of a rescue ball. Yeah. Right. Did, you, did you get into that at all? We, yeah, we did. We actually built uh, some of the first uh, early rescue balls. Um, I remember when I started working there in 1977. In 77, 78 frame is when that was being looked at. Uh, the idea was that they'd have a couple shuttles up there, and if there was a problem, they could put the crew members uh, from one shuttle, uh, you know, that needed to be rescued. The crew members had to be rescued. They'd put them in this inflatable ball and then bring them over to the other spacecraft without having to worry about suits and all that. Right. So and, you um, a couple of spacesuits to be the people who would handle the balls and everybody else would just be in these, like, I think they were like a meter in diameter or something like that, or a little. Yes. Over. Yep. That's about right. Just, you know, big enough for them to be inside. And um, yeah, because at the time there were so many different things, scenarios they were looking at back then of, you know, having multiple shuttles flying and all that, it just never happened. Right. So that all went away, but. Yeah, that was, um, as I recall, it was a uh, Kevlar material that we were looking at. You know, the Kevlar was a thing back when I started working there in 77. That was at the end of Apollo. Apollo was over. They were looking at lighter weight, very uh, robust materials. And Kevlar came on the market, and they thought this was the greatest thing to ever come along in materials. And they thought this will be the answer to all problems. And as I was doing testing with it, um, I can remember taking the strips of Kevlar and folding them and creasing them. And if you folded it back and forth, it was like metal. If you did that and put it in the Instron tensile testing machine, it would break where that fold was. And so 
the idea the idea of, of building suits out of uh, Kevlar went away pretty quick. And wow. and but they're good for like Kevlar vests and things that are stationary, just kind of uh, have to absorb the energy from a bullet, let's say. But if you if it's structural being loaded, uh, it, it doesn't work very well. So here here's another thing that I read that I thought was really interesting. So it sounds like you did some consulting for the movie First Man about Neil Armstrong. And we've talked about First Man on some of our other episodes on this podcast. But something that I found really interesting was that apparently the producer uh, for the movie wanted to make sure that they could reproduce like what the sounds were of the suit um, to include that in the movie. So I'm curious about that whole conversation, how that came about, and then how did you capture sounds and which sounds in particular? You know, I'm thinking like putting the helmet on and locking in place is sort of an obvious one, but I'm curious about what other sounds did they want to capture in First Man? Yeah, that, that's a funny story too. I was at my desk one day and and this fellow by the name of Frank Montagna calls me uh, and he says he introduces himself. He says he's from Universal Studios and he wants to, um, he said, I've been calling all, and he's a really nice guy. He's still a friend of mine. I, 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 to this day, I still talk to him. And he calls me up and he says, hey, I've been calling all around the country. I'm, I'm doing sounds for a movie. And as he's going on, I'm thinking right away because I knew they were doing First Man they were in production for that. So I probably even cut him short and said, oh, you're doing First Man. He said, yeah. He said, I've been calling museums. I've talked to uh, Lisa Young over the Smithsonian, and and they have Apollo suits, but they won't let me play around with them. And I said, well, I I understand that. They're they're very serious about their suits. You can't just play around with them. I said, what are you trying to do? He said, well, I'm I'm the sound guy. I do all the sound. And he said, "Um, for the movie, they really want me to get the true sounds of the helmet going on and the gloves going on. And I said, oh, I said, well, that's that's interesting. I said, I'm surprised you guys are going to that effort. You'd think that I told him, I said, if you just bang a piece of metal on the edge of a table and do it sharply, you could probably make it sound like a helmet going on. And who would know the difference? He said, no, we don't do it that way. He said, believe it or not, we really try to make it right. If Buzz Aldrin's sitting in the audience of that theater, I want him to know that that's that's the right sound. I I said, well, to your credit, that's like credit. That's really great. I said, well, I, I have a spacesuit here. I have an Apollo suit and I have a helmet. And there's this moment of silence. And he says, oh, my. He said, do you think I could come out and get the sound on that? I said, sure. I don't see why not. So this was like on a Wednesday. And he said, well, can I be there like Saturday morning? I'll take the red eye Friday night and I'll be there Saturday with another uh, coworker and we'll do all the sounds. I said, sure. So he flew out. And on Saturday morning, I met him at the plant. And he was there for eight hours, he and his coworker. And we put the helmet on. We put the gloves on. He was so excited because he was able to actually pressurize it on the panel that they, the actual Apollo pressure panels that they used during Apollo, I was able to put the airflow into the suit. So he had his microphones all set up inside the suit as I was flowing the air through it. We did the helmet and the gloves, I don't know, it seemed like hundreds of times so I could get it right. And then he would take the file, the digital file, and send it to the um, – his coworkers that who were sitting at the Alfred Hitchcock Theater at Universal Studios, where they have all the they have hundreds and hundreds of speakers and sound mixers, and they played back the the video or the audio over and over until they had it just right. And this went on for eight hours. So he um he did a great job in nailing all that. And so that was done on a real Apollo suit with a real Apollo glove and helmet and everything. That's cool. Was there somebody in it to? 
I assume that would change the sound. No, yeah, there was, well, as far as the air, they could they could take that sound play in the background. They did um, do a lot of the talking. He had a, he did have a helmet that he had got his hands on somehow, and so they would do some of the voice stuff. The Universal Studios, they did it there with a helmet over someone. So okay, yeah, to catch yeah. the echo right and all that sort of right. thing. Exactly. No, huh. but just for background noise and the sounds of the disconnects and airflow and all that. They were able to use what uh, what they had there at ILC. Just out of curiosity, what did you think of the movie? I liked it. I Neil Armstrong was my hero. I met him in nineteen sixty or nineteen ninety nine, um, and it was on uh, July twentieth uh, anniversary of his mission. And I met him over at the Air and Space Museum and got a chance to talk to him. <clears throat> I was very intimidated because Neil was a, uh, you know, if you know anything about Neil Armstrong, he was a listener. He absorbed everything, but he didn't give you a lot of feedback. He um, was very – he only talked when he felt the need to talk, and that's really the way it was. Um, he just was very reserved. Even his uh, kids in his biography, I think it was said to – you know, paraphrasing, but basically his kids said, I could talk to my dad all day, and I'd hardly get anything out of him because it's just the way he was. He just hardly said anything. So I think um, the universal – really tried their best to make it a true movie without doing a lot, taking a lot of liberty and making a stupid movie, which they can really, you know, movie industry can do that. So to their credit, they didn't do that. But a lot of people were thinking, well, it was kind of boring. It, it didn't move along right. The ending was a little goofy. I don't think anybody believed the end a whole lot. That was where they took a little liberty where he, he threw something on the lunar surface there. I don't think that happened, but, um, by and large, I liked it. Uh, it was okay for me. Uh, I was entertained. If I go to the movie and I'm entertained, I'm all right with it. It wasn't the best movie. It was okay. And that's the, the feedback I kind of got from a lot of people uh, when I go to, like, Space Fest and different events. Everybody in the industry uh, that, that enjoys the space history feels that it was it was okay, um, but, but wasn't the greatest. I think a lot yeah. of people expected an Apollo 11 movie, not – you know, where that was right. one chapter. Right. Yeah. And, and if you had Tom Hanks, you know, you could ask the question, if Tom Hanks had done it, would it have been better? And it could have been that he could have made it better, again, without taking liberties. You don't want to screw a movie up by doing silly stuff. Um, but, but Apollo 13 wasn't. Apollo 13 was pretty much on it. And Tom Hanks did a great job on that. So, But there was a lot of drama involved in that. And, and the drama for Apollo 11 was really the, you know, walking down the ladder and stepping on the moon the day-to-day training for the mission and who these guys were, it was, uh, you know, you could make a movie out of that if you did it right, I suppose. Speaking of Neil Armstrong, I know you were involved with some of the efforts the Smithsonian undertook uh, to, for the preservation and redisplay of Neil Armstrong's lunar suit. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you did to help the Smithsonian for that? Yeah, it started years ago. They they have a really good crew over there, so I, I'm not taking a lot of credit for what they've done recently to get this suit ready for display because they're very smart people and know materials. But when I started working with them back in the 1990s, actually, uh, when I first made contact with some of the folks over there, Lisa Young and, and a number of others, they were very good with materials, but they didn't quite know what they had. They didn't know the formulas for, like, the rubber that was in the suit, because, again, a lot of that history wasn't preserved very well, so it got lost. And um, so I remember going over to one meeting one day, and I ended up taking a fellow by the name of Paul Slavic, who's since passed away. But he was our chief chemist for ILC and Playtex, 
And he was responsible for mixing up all the batches of rubber that, that made the suit up for all the pressure layer in the suit and the convolutes and all the major parts of the Apollo suit were all this rubber compounding that Paul worked on. So uh, we have this meeting one day, it was a weekday, and they invited me over and I gathered up Paul and brought him over and I go walking in the conference room and introduce Paul and they were like blown away that I, I was able to bring this guy over who was the chemist. And so that helped them quite a bit in understanding what the materials were. And then uh, in a lot of research they did with other chemists around the world, understanding rubber and decomposition and how to preserve it. Uh, because up to that point, they really didn't know. Lillian was the in charge of conservation very early on when they first started getting the Apollo suits. Lillian Kozlowski, I think her name was. And she did the best she could, but they were storing suits in very low temperatures. And it was found that that wasn't good because it was, it was aging the rubber and making it brittle. So after all these experts came in, Paul and, and then others around the world that were rubber experts and knowing what was in it, they helped them stabilize it better by uh, having better storage conditions. And then, um, then getting the final display, which was making sure that there's no point loading on the suit, that it's supported equally in the suit with materials that are uh, the right pH levels and all that detail. Um, so they've really nailed it pretty well. I've been over there on several occasions to work with it around the suit. I was fortunate enough uh, a number of years ago, it might have been eight years ago, I'll say, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I took a group of um, retirees that uh, were veterans of Apollo. I gathered them up and we rented a big van and I drove them over there and, and they, uh, Lisa was nice enough to lay the suit out in their laboratory. So I had these veterans all gather around the uh, Neil Armstrong's Apollo 11 suit and it was just such a great moment to get a picture of them gathered around. It. I had a picture in my book. And uh, here are these folks that, uh, like Homer Ream, who was the uh, chief engineer, Joe Thompson, who was one of the seamstresses that sewed the suit. And these people that worked on it to many, many years later have them gather around Neil Armstrong's suit. It was pretty fascinating. And, and I, was, I was thrilled to be able to do it. And they were thrilled to be there. Wow. You know, it's interesting when you mentioned about the rubber characteristics. I remember seeing John Glenn's suit. Now, that was, of course, made by B.F. Goodrich. But when you see it at the museum, it does look pretty wrinkled and almost like he's it's shorter than than I think Glenn actually was. And my understanding was that that had been a consequence of years of it being in cold storage. And so it's interesting that you brought that up. Yes, that's a good point. Exactly. That's what was happening. It was degrading and then uh, kind of like drawing itself in. And that probably is a result of all that. You're right. Tom, any questions? I still have more, so I could, I could go on. So um, how, what's the last suit you were working on at ILC? When I retired there, I was running the test lab and uh, responsible for all the suit testing. And so again, we weren't building and we still aren't building suits. We build the parts. So we would have gloves come through, for instance, and I was responsible for making sure that uh, the folks in the lab were testing the gloves properly. And there was break-in cycles that had to be done on the gloves and, and a lot of different things. Uh, and then, like, let's say you, earlier you, you asked about materials, if we did the materials. And like I said, we buy them from companies. Uh, you know, if we were buying uh, material for the suit from a company, we don't build hundreds of suits. So during the course of the year, 
we might literally only go through six yards of a material to build all the parts we need for the year if it's small parts, cut parts. So we would go to a company and say, we want um, uh, six yards. And we might say, we'll take 10 yards of this material from you. And that company would have to crank up a production run of that. And it might mean shutting down some other lines. It might mean that they can't get the same materials, which um, they, we, we had to sort of, they, they have to certify the material as meeting our requirements. And if they don't have the same materials that they need to build it, then they can't do it and they can't build it. So over the course of time, after all these years, we've had a lot of suppliers who now turn to us and say, look, you're only buying, you know, 20 yards of material from us a year. We can't support that any longer. I think a lot of companies early on were proud to say they were building parts for the spacesuit. And as time's going on, it's kind of waned on a little bit. They're a little less interested. It's creating problems for them. So we have to go find other suppliers. And that creates a problem because we have to certify that material, which means we have to go to another supplier. They build it the way they build it to our specifications. It has to be certain materials, certain breaking strengths, uh, weight requirements, all that thing, all that stuff that goes into it. Then we test that. But then we also have to build parts in some cases, not all. But if it's structural in the suit particularly, we have to build parts and put it in a suit that we kept in our the lab that I ran there. It was our certification set, suit. And we put it in the suit. And then I would hire suit subjects to come in and get in the suit and test it. And it might take six months to get through a certification test to verify that that material is going to hold up and be as good or better than the material from the previous supplier. And then, then you start building parts. So you had to know this well in advance so that you're not holding up any missions, any spacewalks. If an astronaut has to go out and do a spacewalk tomorrow, they better have the, the best material up there. And if it's going to take us a couple of years to produce the new parts with the new material, we have to be thinking ahead all the time. And that's what the problem was. It is today still. Uh, so it's, it's a tricky business. So I was there when they were, you know, still working and they still are working on the space station suits, but NASA's getting to a point now where they need to start thinking about the next generation suits. There's a contract out an award, uh, is, is opening out there for, uh, companies to supply, uh, the next generation suit. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens here. Cause I wouldn't be surprised if you see Elon Musk, um, jumping into this. Yeah, I was going to ask actually a question about that. <clears throat> Has did SpaceX ever reach out to ILC? You know, they their suits obviously have a very different look and feel than to the ILC um, various generations of suits. And I'm just curious: are those are their suits also interchangeable, or are they, you know, molded for each uh, of the astronauts that they're you know taken up to ISS? Curious about that. Well, so we build extravehicular activity suits or EVA suits. Um, the suit that you see with uh, these other contractors, whether it's uh, SpaceX or, and they're really the only other ones right now because you see the other people going up in just shirt sleeves, you know, their jumpsuits and what have you. But to go into space and to go to the space station, NASA requires a pressure suit. So what, what SpaceX has done is designed what I call a pressure suit. I don't, I don't call it a space suit. If I call it a spacesuit, to me, a spacesuit means the extravehicular activity go outside and work in spacesuit. Their pressure suit that they build is, I'm going to say it's custom made, but it's probably more of a, a medium, large, extra large style thing. It's probably a dash number that represents the size so they can uh, size different astronauts for it. But those suits are like the, um, 
early mercury suits, if you will. They're not meant to go outside. They're just meant to be pressurized, but only pressurized if they lose pressure on board the, the spaceship. So if SpaceX launches, their, their capsule, when they launch, their capsule's pressurized. So they literally don't have to have a suit on. They could just go up in shirt sleeves, you know, and, and um, pants, and that'd be fine. But the problem is, if they have a catastrophic launch where there's some decompression, they're in their suit, and the suit would automatically inflate and allow them to get back down to the ground. And so it's only temporary, so they just have to get the atmospheric pressure. So it might literally be for minutes that they'd have to um, descend back into the atmosphere, and they'd be okay. So pressure suits are very forgiving. You can pretty much easily design a pressure suit. There's not a lot involved in it. I say that it's a relative thing, of course. Not anybody can do it. But, but pressure suits aren't, aren't really complicated. It's when you get into the extravehicular activity suits, which I'm talking about uh, NASA's going to want to have in the future here, in the near future. They're going to put out this uh, request for bids on it, and they're going to be looking at next generation. If SpaceX... Once, if Elon Musk wants to get involved, Elon Musk did send someone to our company a number of years ago. It was an astronaut. I don't remember who it was that, that was retired from the astronaut corps, but he used him as a uh, contractor to come ask questions. And at the time, I thought to myself, I think I had a conversation with one of the engineers there, and we talked about the fact that this astronaut was visiting us, but there was probably no chance that that Elon Musk was going to subcontract the suit business out to anybody to have us build a suit for him. If you know anything about Elon Musk, he does everything himself. So I think in the future going forward, Elon Musk is probably already, he probably already has engineers working on a next generation spacesuit. That's my guess. I'm betting I'm probably right on that. And <clears throat> that means a whole new architecture for a suit. It means the primary life support system and everything that goes with it. But look at what Elon Musk has done. I don't think it's going to be a big challenge for him to do it. Uh, but again, it's a relative thing because to build a safe spacesuit that I'm going to be comfortable getting in and going out and working in, you better be able to prove to me that you've, you've shaken this out pretty well and you know all the, you know, how this thing's going to work in space. And the only way to really test a suit is to go into space with it. You can take a spacesuit, put it in a vacuum chamber, and it'll, you know, it'll tell you if it's going to hold the pressure. You can uh, do the zero-G plane for 15 seconds where you, you know, maybe 30 seconds where you get zero gravity and see if it works there. One of the engineers during Apollo, Homer Ream, told me that the only true time that, uh, and he was at uh, Mission Control when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, and he said he was scared to death because that was the first, first time that suit was ever really tested in the way it was for what it was designed to do be on the moon. And that was when Neil Armstrong opened that hatch and walked on the moon because there's no way to, to test that, that suit up in a complete system that would, that would uh, test it in the one sixth gravity and everything else. So Elon Musk might be able to build a suit that works in the vacuum chamber and, and seems to work, you know, in one G pretty good, but uh, he's going to have to, he's got a long haul to go to, to make sure he can produce a suit that that'll work uh, to NASA's uh, and, and to the, user's satisfaction being the astronaut, but is he capable of it? The answer is yes, he could do it. The next generation suits, you're going to see a lot of um, fiberglass type components for uh, the ability to uh, increase mobility, to make parts that are better fitting. So you could have like a brief assembly, um, an upper torso assembly, similar to what we have now, but maybe smaller and 
in uh, size and the ability to maybe open it from the back and, and have a rear entry type thing um, integrated with uh, the, the primary life support system. All that stuff, uh, certainly he's capable of doing, uh, but it's going to be very unique stuff and they're not going to be cranking out a lot of these things. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join us for the conclusion of our interview with historian Bill Avery in our next podcast. For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.